Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palenker. Here on Media Path, we gently guide you toward entertainment content that's interesting, maybe undiscovered, but at the very least, not a waste of your time. And we love to welcome talented guests as well. Today, we have three amazing stories to tell you. Three singers, songwriters, music producers. One of the magical things they have in common is that they were the force behind the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, the sleeper hit movie with Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey that burst onto the scene in 1987 and earned them wild success along with an Oscar and a Golden Globe, a Grammy nomination, and an ASCAP award. We're going to learn all about it. They are Frankie Previtt, John DiNicola, and Stacey Weidlitz, and they'll be on in just a second. But first, Wheezy, we have to address the tuxedo-wearing elephant in the room. <laughs> From yeah. Oscars Sunday night, the slap heard round the world, the Will Smith, Chris Rock smackdown. Tell, tell me what you're feeling about that thing. So yeah, it just kind of immediately, I was just consumed by feelings that I and I couldn't express them. So I kind of wrote down my thoughts and here they are. Immediately following the incident, white people were told on Twitter that we dare not have an opinion about black women and their hair or the ways in which black men protect black women. I hear that and I will not weigh in on that portion of the dispute. As a comedian, I get to have an opinion about telling an offensive joke. I have done that. I have never been assaulted. There have been thousands of jokes told at the Oscars or at celebrity roasts that have hurt or offended or opened a wound or disrespected someone's history or added fuel to a feud, nobody got clocked. As we are watching in horror the violence unfolding across Europe, we saw a guy get angry, walk up onto a stage, and smack another man in the face. We then celebrated, cheered, and applauded as that assailant was honored for his good work. If Will Smith had leaned into the microphone and said, my wife has alopecia, and then glared at Chris Rock and taken his seat, it would have been a powerful moment. Instead, it's an ugly moment that tarnished the evening for Questlove and the CODA team and Jane Campion and so many other great artists. I am hopeful that the event will evolve into conversations about alopecia and also about men who cry with their fists or with bullets. Because if he was willing to commit that assault publicly and then use his speech not to apologize but to justify his actions, then he has a problem and many people live in households with such a person. The smallest slight ignites rage and violence. That should be the next conversation. Now, Chris Rock, how can you make a film like Good Hair and then talk any smack at all about a woman's style? It's either her choice or it's what she is working with. You know better. And G.I. Jane jokes are so very 90s. Demi and Jada look super cute. Shut it. So Fritz, your thoughts. <laughs> Fritz, your thoughts. Well, violence is inexcusable. If if Will was sticking up for Jada, he should have done it off stage. Mm -hmm. I would, I, I would, you know, him clocking him behind the curtain would have made more sense to me. I, but honestly, I don't think that Chris knew about Jada's condition, nor would he have made a joke about it if he had known. I was watching in a room full of 20 people, not one person knew that she suffered from alopecia. They said it was a commonly known thing. I, nobody I was with had ever heard that. 
Now, they had priors from a joke Chris told about Jada in the 2016 Oscars when he was hosting. So in Will's mind, this may have been a callback to that joke and a bridge too far. Now, there's a discussion about taking his Oscar away from him. I don't think no. they need to do that. No. It's the old argument that you have to separate the art from the artists. I call it the Woody Allen syndrome. When you watch further Will Smith performances, will you be able to suspend your disbelief long enough to get him lost in the character? That'll be the big question. I also think Will missed, as you said, a, a chance to rehabilitate himself. When he won his Oscar, he might have apologized to Chris, the Academy, the entire planet, mentioned Jada's disease, did a mea culpa for the inappropriate response, maybe even invited Chris back on stage for a hug. That didn't happen. He apologized to the Academy, but then he went off on this self-important rant about wanting to be a vessel for love and a force for good in the world. Even Bishop Desmond Tutu would have said, tone it down, dude. I've <laughs> known Will since Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which was shot in the NBC lot where I worked for 35 years. He was a gifted performer, a very special young man. And I'm very sad that this event came off like it did because, as you mentioned, it tainted everybody's Oscars after that even the winners so sad that's enough of that i would love to hear All what right. our guests well you can introduce our guests but then i would love to hear what they yeah they, they got an oscar they've been on that stage they never smacked maybe they anyone. punched somebody that we we don't know about yes. three gentlemen that shared the magical experience of composing music for the dirty dancing soundtrack they won an oscar a golden globe a grammy nomination an ascap award for their work Frankie Previtt is a singer and songwriter. You may remember him as part of the rock quintet Frankie and the Knockouts. They had three top 40 singles and two top 50 albums. Their biggest hit was Sweetheart. It was a top 10 hit in 1981. He was the co-writer on I've Had the Time of My Life and Hungry Eyes from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Eric Carmen, a good friend of Wheezy's, went on to have a hit with Hungry Eyes. John Nicola is a songwriter and producer who co-wrote I've Had the Time of My Life. He also wrote songs for Eddie Money and John Waite. He's produced lots of albums in his own studio, including a band called Kara's Flowers, which went on to become Maroon 5. Are you kidding me? He released a debut album of songs he wrote called The Why Because. It's a great name for an album, which includes versions of Hungry Eyes and I've Had the Time of My Life. And Stacy Weidlitz has scored many, many television shows and films for both daytime and primetime television. At only 24 years old, he scored the theme for The Richard Simmons Show. So when you were trying to look good at those disgustingly small shorts trying to imitate Richard Simmons, you were dancing to his music, which is hard to believe. His connection to the Dirty Dancing experience was one of those cosmic accidents. He and Patrick Swayze were neighbors. Patrick had an idea for a song, and Stacy helped him with it. The song was called She's Like the Wind, which ended up on the soundtrack as well. And after many years of scoring television and film in Los Angeles, he moved to Nashville. He ran for public office down there, became a city commissioner in the community of Oak Hill. He also became the board president of the Nashville Film Festival and is currently, I think he is still, the president of the Nashville Opera Guild. Talented man who also did music for the other Patrick Swayze film that I saw, Roadhouse and 50 Days of Summer. Gents, we're so happy to have you here today. I hope we can pack this all in in an hour. 
So glad you're here. Here, I think you just did the interview for us. <laughs> no, no, no. I wanted to say it's it's hard doing three people who have had diverse yet slightly connected uh, careers, and I wanted to give you all your due because that makes it's like the founding fathers of the United States. All these geniuses came together for <laughs> one creative process. It's a super group, I, and, 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 and since we have still the low grade Oscar fever. Uh, Frankie and John, set up that moment when you walked on stage and the sights and sounds of taking home that statue, something that very few people on the planet understand. Well, first, I want to I kind of clarify one thing that um, you, you left out. John also is the co-writer of Hungry Eyes uh, with me as, as well as Time of My Life. And so right. that, was, that was actually the first song we ever wrote together. So I, I didn't want to leave that out. Um, no, and that also, you, you released that with Frankie and the Knockouts a few years before the soundtrack came out, right? Not really released it. It was a demo that was going oh. to be Knockouts' next record. And John released it about two years ago, and it went uh, like number 22 on the AC chart. So um, the song has had many lives, but nothing like the life it had with uh, Dirty Dancing and Eric Carmen's version. Um, my, my experience of uh, being at the Academy Awards, I had my mother and father sitting left and right of me. And I remember listening to all the songs and my father being the Italian that he was, looked at me and said, I just heard all the songs. And he said, you're going to win. And I just looked at him and I was like, do not put the Maloiki on me. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, when they announced the winner, which was Liza Minnelli, uh, was one of the uh, presenters along with Dudley Moore. And uh, I had said to John and Don Markowitz, who was the other co-writer of Time of My Life, you're sitting close to the aisle. I'm in the middle of the aisle. Wait for me because they'll start the clock as soon as, <laughs> as, soon as you go up there and we'll get beat for some time. But of course, in the heat of the moment, I was trying to get out and, poof, you know, Donnie Markowitz and, and was up on stage and, and the clock started ticking. But um, it was a surreal moment. Um, I had a gentleman that told me, uh, made the call for, for me to uh, possibly write uh, time of my life for the for the movie. And he said, make time. This is going to change your life. So that was part of my speech was thanking Jimmy Einer for changing my life. And I, I don't know, it was surreal. I, I, I floated up there. I don't remember walking up there. You know, I, <laughs> you know well, was, well, I'm going to just remind folks of the other nominated songs that night, because one of them was the very first nomination for Diane Warren, who's now had 13, and she's still waiting for her Oscar. You know, like, next year, Diane. All right, so the other nominated songs that year were Cry Freedom from Cry Freedom, right? And Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, Diane's song from Mannequin. Uh, from Beverly Hills Cop 2, Shakedown. And let's see, was that a, uh, that was a Bob Seger song, right? Correct, correct. And then the, the storybook Love uh, from The Princess Bride. Yeah, that was uh, Mink DeVille, Willie DeVille. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a triumphant night for you guys. Beyond yeah. my... Go ahead, Frank. No, I said just beyond my dream, so... Yeah, you know, what, what I remember, um, you know, first of all, going out to Hollywood, 
it's a you know it's a, being from New York City. It's just a different vibe there, and uh, it, it was kind of dreamlike. And um, watching all the other songs, you know, they 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 uh, they do each song right. Uh, there's a, a moment during the show where they do the song, and our song was not really a full-blown production it was kind of a small production cry freedom was chorus walking through the aisles and people screaming and yelling and and ours was like this little thing and i remember frank and i we looked at each other we go gee i don't know it's kind of a <laughs> i can't imagine that we're the winners if they have such <laughs> this little tiny thing but but you know the moment we were we were uh, called up as frankie stated um by the time we got there the clock was down a lot and frank frank being the pivot man for this through jimmy einer was the first to speak and and he did a lot of thank yous and and then don markowitz did and by the time i got up there the clock was out <laughs> zero and that, that's I, my big fear that that would happen to me yeah well it did happen but you know i uh, at the moment my mom was in the hospital uh she actually, it was a high and low period for me because she passed away 30 days from that night, but oh. she was able to see that. And that was my only thing that I said. I just wanted to dedicate it to my mom who's in the hospital. And um, and then afterwards, I, I, the parties were sort of kind of low key to me, you know, coming from New York. And I know it was like, uh, it was just like a kind of a, you know, relaxed compared to what I expected. But I do have vivid memories of Burt Lancaster coming over to our table saying hi, Jack Nicholson coming over. It's your night, fellas. It's your night. <laughs> Come on, man. That's the best right there. And and then uh, who was, oh, and um, John Candy. You know, so that was really for me, the, the highlights was meeting those guys and, and uh, a bit of, uh, you know, John was just, John Candy was just so, um, real and regular and and burt lancaster you know being a hero of mine yeah those are my memories what was the moment when you guys knew that your lives were changing forever does it come down to a moment i, I think mine started before that night because we were invited to a uh, a dinner beforehand or a luncheon and samuel goldwyn approached me and said I have this movie called Mystic Pizza I'm working on, and I'd like you to write a song for it. And I'd like you to go speak to our musical director and maybe cut a deal with him now. <clears throat> and I just looked at him and I said, I'll no wait. No pressure. I'll wait until <laughs> it hurts. You know, so um, I kind of had this feeling of why is he approaching me now? And maybe something good is going to happen. So I just felt like, you know, I'm going to wait to see what happens before I negotiate writing my next song. So that, you know, that was kind of my vibe of what was going on and, you know, with meeting people. And I think my, my best memory was meeting Patrick Swayze and having a, a really good conversation with him and having him tell me how much the movie and how much the song time of my life meant to him and the cast because they had listened to 149 songs up to that day <clears throat> before they were going to film. And they actually 
rehearsed to a Lionel Richie song that was a you know really good song, but not an original song. So they were kind of down on the movie, like, eh, let's get this over with. And Emil Ardolino, who was a director, walked in and said, one more cassette. We have one more cassette, the 150th cassette. Let's listen to it. So they listened to it and they all looked at each other and was, is this a great song or are we desperate? And somebody went both, you know? So basically he said, after filming, we all just looked at each other and went, what a great ending. Let's go make a movie. And he goes, they kind of saved the movie and the camaraderie we had for the movie. Wow. So that, that was a very special moment. Yeah, it, it was not easy because Eleanor Bergstein or Bergstein, the, the woman that wrote the movie, had very specific ideas of what kind of music she wanted. She had picked out selected singles from her past and you had to duplicate those. Right. So she, she was pretty picky about the music that ended up in the movie. Until, yeah, until Jimmy Einer came in and took everything away and then kind of gave her back what she originally was asking for, minus a couple of songs. But. John, what, what do you remember about that? Well, no, Eleanor, uh, you're correct in that she, she had written all the um, 60s and 50s hits into the, uh, into the script. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Cry to Me and, uh, uh, you know, all, all the uh, big hits from the 50s and 60s that we all know that were, you know, Do You Love Me and, and the rest. And um, she, she... It was Jimmy, actually, who, who said, well, in order to sell a soundtrack, we have to have some original songs, you know, because you can always get those. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a certain uh, compilation, but we need songs that we can go to radio to create hits. You know, th these songs were already hits, the old ones. So we can't. So that that's that was what Jimmy brought to it. And uh you know, I don't think Eleanor objected to that. I, I don't think she had it in her mind. Oh, shoot, we're going to sell a soundtrack. I got to get hit songs other than those old songs. So but how did you so perfectly capture the moment with your lyrics? It's not just that the melody is it, it's just so stupendously outstanding, but the lyrics really capture that moment in the film. You were, hadn't been on the set. Had you read the screenplay? Like, how much did you know before you wrote those lyrics? Um, you know, when, when Jimmy called me, it basically gave me like a two minute description, Johnny meets baby, the father doesn't like the kid. And so <laughs> when, when I called John and, you know, Jimmy was like, you know, we, we've, we've, uh, listened to a lot of songs and, and I said, Jimmy, I don't have time. I'm trying to get another deal. You decided to go into film and you shut your label and I said, I don't have time. He goes, make time. This is going to change your life. And I'm like, yeah, right. You're going to change my life. And so he goes, no, it's a good little movie. And so very little of a description. And uh, so when I called John, because he was the first person I thought of to, to help me with this project, um, I gave him an idea of, you know, the good news is we got a chance to write a song. The bad news is it's for the last scene and it has to be seven minutes long. So, you know, you got to write MacArthur Park here. So, <laughs> you know, writing a seven minute song is, is not the easiest thing in the world. So on the Garden State Parkway, exit 140, I took that cassette that John sent me and I pushed it into my dashboard 
And I started jamming. Nin, nin, and I'm of my life. Nin, nin, and I'm of my life. Scribbling. I had the time of my life on an envelope. And really, the man upstairs wrote the lyrics. Because Patrick said to me, it was like, you were here watching us make this film. Because those lyrics are incredibly close to what is going on in this movie. But that, that all was inspired by the music I was hearing that was sent from John. It all had to come together, all those parts, to create the, the lyrics. Are you watching American Idol this season? I don't ever watch that kind of stuff. Okay, so there's a kid who's auditioning, and he just keeps saying, I'm having the time of my life, and then they start playing the record, and slow -mo everything goes into slow motion. Right, I heard, I heard about that. I actually <laughs> missed that, but I heard about it. And the three judges, uh, Lionel Richie, isn't that funny, Frankie? Lionel yeah. Richie. Yeah, uh, full Katie circle. Perry, and uh, I don't know who the third one is, but they started singing it. And, and, then, a little, and then a little later in the show, they showed an ad, a commercial, and they played A Time of My Life yeah. for the yeah. show that was on next, yeah. which yeah. was, uh, I don't know, something in the movies. Uh, it was uh, it was really good. I watched it. Derek Huff and his sister. Oh, okay. Um, did a um basically uh, took all the old great dance movie scenes um you know fred astaire and what you know whoever uh, donald o'connor the famous you know um couch thing that with couch going down and all that yeah. and uh and they the closing song was they finished the show with the time of my life and, and oh, uh, wow. kenny ortega was on frankie did you see it I did not. Well, I Kenny Ortega was on, and and he was uh, he was kind of sweet. He started crying, tearing up about it, and it was it was uh, it was kind of, it was Stacey, well done. The show was well done. Okay, Stacy, I want to talk about Kenny Ortega because your connection to this film was more happenstance than the other two guys. Talk about meeting Kenny Ortega and Eleanor, the writer, at a barbecue at Patrick Swayze's, and what grew out of that. Well. You know, we actually um, already had She's Like the Wind written. We had, uh, we'd written it two years prior to the movie for a different movie called Grandview USA. Um, when I was at the, that barbecue, I remember um, talking to Eleanor, uh, who was then uh, demonstrating some of the dance moves that she pictured on Kenny. And that was pretty interesting because she was really grinding on him. <laughs> and uh, so it was uh, it was it was kind of funny. Yeah, so everybody was, you know, incredibly nice. Um, and this was prior to the movie you know, being shot or anything. And uh, but, you know, the way the song, my song came about was, as you mentioned, Patrick, whom I knew as Buddy, friends and family called him Buddy. Um, we met in his acting class and then discovered that we lived around the block from each other. And he and his wife and I and my then girlfriend, Wendy Fraser, who ended up singing on She's Like the Wind. She's the uh, woman that comes in toward the end. Uh, we all became friends and he knew I was writing music for television, mostly daytime at that point. And he called me up one day and said, I have this idea for a song. They're looking for songs for Grandview. Do you want to work on it with me? And I said, yeah, sure, come on over. So that evening he came around the block with his guitar and I was at my piano and he sang me the, um, he had two chords that he just played over and over again. Uh, but a lot of interesting listing, like what I call listing lyrics of 
you know, going through things. And the first two lines intrigued me, which were, she's like the wind through my tree. She rides the night next to me. But then I didn't like the third and fourth lines. And he got a little defensive. And I, he said, well, what would you do? You know, what would you say? And I said, um, just off the top of my head, I said, she leads me through moonlight only to burn me with the sun. And, and so he said, what does that mean? And I said, I don't care. Just write it down. <laughs> and, uh, because we are craftsmen. We take our craft very seriously. So it was like, just write it down. <laughs> and um, then I moved it someplace musically in the, you know, feel her breath on my face. And then when we realized that she's like the wind was more than just the opening line, that it was also the, um, the hook for the song, uh, that's when we really had something. And the smart thing that we did was we did a really good demo of it with him singing it, uh, Wendy on it. I brought in a guitarist. I programmed all the synth tracks. And um, so even though it was dropped from Grandview, which turned out to be a blessing, um, two years later, he was on the set of Dirty Dancing in North Carolina, and he played them the demo. And they wanted it. And that's when he called me from uh, North Carolina saying, they want it, they want it. And my reaction was, are you sure not, they're not just jerking you around because you're the star of the movie? And he said, no, no, they're serious. They want you to call uh, this guy, Jimmy Einer, um, who Frankie was talking about before. And so I got on the phone with uh, Jimmy that night, and that's when it all started to solidify. I, I just want to ask one further thing, Wheezy, if I could, yeah, while we're on sure. the topic, talking about demos. Um, you know, Bill Medley and Jennifer Warren's uh, recorded I've had the time of my life. And they, this, I think it's one of the most played records in American radio history or some insane uh, record there. But many folks, particularly people involved in the movie, thought that your demo of that song was even better than the final recording of it because it was truer to the emotion and less complicated and so i bet that happens a lot where the demo is better than the produced version but the but but the person that did the demo isn't famous enough to sell a single or something like that i just bet that happens and it's soul crushing you know i i think that um having having the bill medley same time in my life obviously they filmed the movie to the demo. So they, they had what I call demo-itis. They got so used to hearing that demo that, you know, and that moment happened for them with that demo that saved their movie. So um, it became very uh, protective of that demo. And then for me to have a righteous brother sing one of yeah. my songs, one of my heroes growing up, it was like an unbelievable moment for me. And, uh, you know, I, I think the the really uh, the plus side of it was that it's not the demo isn't much different than Bill Medley's version, except Bill just sang it down an octave, you know, because mm -hmm. he was like, how am I going to hit those high notes? He's a tenor. And they just said, lower this, you know, lower it an octave. So they kept it in the same key. And Bill Medley did his lower the octave thing. And. He was the thread, the 1963-64 thread that connected that 1987 contemporary music back to the era of when that movie was depicted. And so it, it kind of made the connection 
whenever I see that video, it's it's like, Evocative. oh, okay, I see a stylistic through line here. Yeah, 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 interesting. Okay, uh, this one, I think you guys are going to know. What is Baby's real name? Jennifer Gray. Jennifer no, no. Gray. Oh, oh, Fra- I have to give you Fra- that. Francis. Francis Hoffman. Yes, yeah. Frankie. Uh, Francis, named after the, she wanted to say named after the first uh, first lady, which is Eleanor. But right. Eleanor's sister's name was Francis. Right. So she's named after the first woman in the cabinet. Right. Francis right. C. Perkins was right. the U.S. Secretary of Labor from 1933 to 1947, was appointed by President FDR during his first term and served throughout all four of his terms and two years into Harry Truman's presidency. So you guys have done pretty well with uh, Dirty Dancing trivia. Is there any other trivia that we should know that you guys know that's more like music-based trivia? Yeah, the fact that, you know, like I mentioned, Wendy was uh, on the final version as well and did a a great job on it. Uh, Just on a a personal note, she and I, after eight years together, split up three weeks before the single was released of She's Like the Wind. Oh, my God. So... uh, there was actually a moment that I had where she and I were yelling at each other a few months later over the phone and she's like the wind came on the radio in my neighbor's apartment. Oh my and God. So, so she and I are yelling at each other and I'm counting down the bars till she starts singing. And finally I said, I have to hang up now. And so she said, why? And I said, because my life has become a B movie and I provided my own underscore. And then I, <laughs> That was in the moment you were able to deliver that line? Yes. It's, that, it's is the way, that, that is heroic. That is heroic. But she so, actually uh, turned out to be like the wind, which is like blowing my mind. Yeah, yeah. But but she was a, a phenomenal singer. And she's also, here's a bit of trivia. The music video for She's Like the Wind was directed by David Fincher, who then became oh, wow. a successful uh, director. And he projected scenes of the film onto a moving curtain and shot it that way in black and white. And then toward the end, when Wendy starts singing, she actually does appear in the video. I would like to hear a little backstory of a 24-year-old writing the theme song for Richard Simmons. (laughs) I I, I don't picture it where you just drop it off and they're like, thanks. I picture there being some kind of feedback from Mr. Simmons. Well, yes. Matter of fact, there was. what happened was I was still living in New York at the time and Wendy and I were living together. Uh, And um, I was writing music for a studio in Stanford, Connecticut for industrial shows, educational projects and all this. I'd started composing and getting paid for it when I was 19. So um, I'd been playing clubs since I was 15. But anyway, so um, Wendy's father, Woody Fraser, who's very famous producer, Uh, produced the Richard Simmons show. And he and I met in New York. He was visiting Wendy and we got along really well. And he heard music of mine that I was writing for this studio. And he says, you know, this stuff is really, really good. And so Wendy called him and says, is there anything that Stacy can submit on that you're doing? And he said, well, I've got this new show. Why don't the two of you work on it? Um, See if you can come up with a theme for it. But here's the deal. I'm not giving it to you. I have to like it. My wife, Nora, has to like it, who was co-producing. The uh, syndicator has to like it, which was, I believe, was KTLA, where we were shooting it, where they shot it. 
And then uh, the star has to like it. And so if you can fulfill all four of those conditions, then you get it. And so Wendy and I, I came up with an initial idea and she had a couple of things to add. And we did a, um, we called him, uh, Woody, and played it for him over the phone with me at the piano and Wendy doing do, 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 do. And um, there was this pause when we finished, you know, 30 second theme. And he just said, wow, that's really good. And then he said, Nora, get over here. And so we played it for Nora and she said, wow, that's really good. So we had two. And then he said, make a cassette and send it immediately. See if you can overnight it. And we did. And then he called us, you know, a couple of days later, he says, Richard loves it. And the syndicator loves it. We booked you on a flight to LA uh, for next week. Uh, we're putting together six uh, uh, of the best session musicians in town and you'll cut the theme at Paramount Studios. Oh my gosh. So, wow. so pretty crazy. And then when the show- 24 years old. Yeah, 24. But again, I've been working at it for five years already. And when the show became a hit unexpectedly, that was when Wendy and I, a year later, realized we needed to move to LA and that's that's when we did and that's when I started watching Fritz Coleman do do my weather and so. your life got better instantly now <laughs> let me ask you a let me ask you a question um Stacy and it's a personal question you can just tell me to buzz off but when you write and I I I'm, this is the Paul Anka question because I asked him the same thing about writing the theme for the Johnny Carson show when you write a theme for a music uh, for a a, a television show does your participation in royalties continue in perpetuity until the show's over or do you get bought off in the beginning? I'm just fascinated by the money aspect of that. I, I never did a buyout. I knew the business well enough. Uh, and I had a great deal of um, perhaps um, unnecessary value in what I brought to the table. So uh, <laughs> I, I had a, a big view of that. So I never did a buyout. And uh, to this day on my, I'm with BMI, so on my BMI royalty statements, 40-something years later, I still see the Richard Simmons show theme turn up. All right, you brought up BMI. I'm going to bring up, a, uh, bring up ASCAP, and sitting behind Frankie is the ASCAP Award. Now, you've had an Oscar, you, you've had Grammy nominations, you had a Golden Globe, but, but for a songwriter... The ASCAP Award has special significance. Frankie, talk about that, because that, that's being accepted by your peers and it means something more historic. Talk about it. Well, ASCAP is really uh, a company like BMI. They're an administrator of finding out how many people in the world are playing your song and collecting a royalty for you, and they take an admin fee, an administration fee for doing it. So um, that year, uh, time of my life, won the ASCAP song of the year means the most played song in the world. And I think it sits in the, um, the ASCAP sent me this email saying, here's the top 20 songs ever. And uh, so number one was Happy Birthday. <laughs> <clears throat> number right five there. was My Girl. And number 15 was Time of My Life. Oh, oh my songs. God! Patrick and I won uh, BMI awards uh, as well. We got uh, one set of awards as uh, for um, their film and TV awards night for most played song from a 
film or TV show. And then uh, the next night we won a pop award. Uh, so what, which was, which was great. And he came to that one. He didn't go to the film and TV one, but he came with me to the pop awards and that was a great evening. Oh, yeah. Wow. What were you going to say, John? Oh, I was just going to say hungry eyes, uh, was number two that year. It was, so it was time in my life and hungry eyes. Wow. I most played songs for ASCAP that year. Wow. And, and I, I, I'm curious, um, even though Stacy, you had been writing television themes, this was the first time you guys had songs in a motion picture. Talk about seeing the movie for the first time with an audience and what that was like. Ed, John. Uh, well, you know, um, we had seen um, a, a, a kind of a preview before they edited it down. Um, that's the first time I saw it on the big screen. I think it was the Zigfield Theater. And, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the public. It was uh, people involved in the movie and whatever. Really? You're right. It was pre-release. And it was um, uh, it was a lot hotter. It was a, definitely an R rated what we saw. Oh, yeah. And um, and, you know, it was good, but it wasn't like, you know, the, it was, you know, a little bit uh, long and a little bit. I don't know. And then um, the next time I saw it was when it was taken off and it was up, up, I remember my apartment on 84th and Broadway, I was a theater over there and it was jammed. And um, uh, that was the first time I saw, you know, it in its uh, new edit, the final edit, which was PG-13. And it was uh, unbelievable. It was an unbelievable moment. Um, uh, goosebumps, when I think about it, and, uh, one one thing I noted was at the end of of it, you know, first of all, everybody seemed to be loving it. And at the end of it, there there were a lot of people, and certainly the people in front of me were sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting for the credits. And then I saw the, them go, oh, they're, they're at the time of my life. That's it, the time of my life. So I knew then there you know people were digging the song so you know and it's not a and movie John, that it's not a movie that people saw once this is before yeah. you could record anything people went over and over again is that what you guys were finding there, there's a club called the thousand club of people that have seen it a thousand times but stacy when oh was the first God. time you saw it i first time i saw it was at the cast and crew screening in la uh, which was, went it was edited though at that point it was edited. It was fully okay. edited. Okay. But the, the word on the street, really, this is why I was not very excited about having the song in the movie, really. The word on the street had been, this is a terrible movie. It's going to go straight to video after opening the theater. Uh, it'll be in the theater for a week. And because it was Vestron Pictures, which only did videos up until that point, the plan was it's going to go to video. And so I remember Wendy and I walking out of the theater and we turned to each other and said, you know, that was actually pretty good. That was nearly as bad as everybody was saying it was. You know, what's kind of funny is that Vestron uh, also was a company that did porn movies. Yeah. So, you know, when, when Jimmy, you know, first said to me, uh, I said, what's the name of the movie? And he said, uh, Dirty Dancing. I was like, oh no, it's doing a porn. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, thinking all, all of this and then not, I was also I had heard it was going to come out and go right to VHS in about a week. Within yeah. that, 300,000 people back ordered 
the record. And by the time RCA could print a record, a million records were back ordered. So Joe Public made Dirty Dancing happen. It wasn't Festival Films. It wasn't RCA Records. It was Joe Public. Yeah, because it was and Frankie, the, the, the story, uh, you, you brought it up, how quickly they printed the records. Also, you guys were supposed to get a gold record for selling 500,000 copies, and somebody wasn't getting their gold record in time, and you called an S about it, and he said, because it just went platinum, we got to redo it. That, 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 that happened to me. Michael Lloyd, who produced both Time My Life and She's Like the Wind, um, he called me uh, and said, uh, oh, you're getting a gold record. And I really wasn't in the record business. I was in the film and TV business and, and yeah. writing music. So I was thrilled. I was like, oh, boy, a gold record. This is fantastic. And then, you know, like maybe a week and a half, two weeks went by and I didn't get it. And I didn't really know how it worked. So I called Michael and I said, you know, when do I get the gold record? And he said, <laughs> well, you're not getting a gold record. And so I was like, why? You told me I'm getting a, a gold record. He says, well, because now you're getting a platinum record. And Patrick and brought it over, right? Patrick brought it. By the time we finally did get our uh, records, they were triple platinum. And um, both of mine and Patrick's went to his house, uh, Rancho Bizarro, north of the city. And, uh, <laughs> and um, so he's called me and he said, I have your record. Are you going to be home tomorrow? And obviously he knew where I lived because he used to live around the block. And a lot of people in the neighborhood still knew him. So the next late morning, I hear this commotion outside and this honking and this yelling. And I go out and there's a stretch limo coming down my block where my apartment was. And he's standing up out of the moonroof, holding my <laughs> record up over his head. And he's yelling, I want everybody on Orange Street to know that your neighbor, Stacy Weidlitz, is getting a triple platinum record for the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. And I'm just standing there, you know, stunned. But it, it, it speaks to the type of person that he was also, that he was a very, very generous and also very funny soul. I mean, it was it just amused him no end to, to do that. Oh, that's and if you, turn, if you look behind Stacy. They sent him another one of those platinum records, except this time it was ten million. Well, it, oh, eleven. My God. Eleven. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. Don't don't undersell it. It's eleven. <laughs> but it ended up selling over forty million. So, Worldwide. do you guys? Do people keep now keep track of Spotify streams, or what do people keep track of now? Uh, yeah, uh, that, you guys are it. all uh, aggravated. Okay, I yeah. want to hear more. It, <laughs> well, it's it, Spotify. It's tracked by BMI and performing rights associations. Um, I also have a company called Audiam that uh, tracks uh, YouTube performances and sends me a, a check a month for that. But it's Spotify is, you know, it's criminal that it's an incredibly wealthy company with incredibly wealthy executives that pays a pittance to the people right. that allow them to live point zero zero seven of a penny. No, 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 no. Thousandth point zero 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 two. And one of you guys recommends that if you want to support an artist, it's important for you not just to stream their song on Spotify, but go out and buy the record. That's how you support the artist. There you yeah. go. There you go. Even, Chris. If, even if you buy the single on uh, Apple, 
mm-hmm. you know, that's better because at least they're oh. getting, you know, the mechanical royalty. Right. So right. It, it's it's that's it's, a better way. And I, I try to do that myself. And I actually uh, took Spotify out of my computer. If I'm okay. going to if I'm going to stream something, I'll stream it on Apple or or even maybe on Amazon, which also pays better than Spotify. I, I often uh, quote this number. I, I it, it changes quarter to quarter, but almost every time I look, uh, I'll have about 13 million streams in three months, right? 13 million streams. Yeah, that makes 15 sense. 15 million streams, so, you know, up and down. And I'll get like $500. Holy oh cow, that's just wrong. Now, if, if a, a band, a new band coming out that probably very excited to get 200,000 streams, that would be awesome, right? You know, you're talking like a dollar or two. It's interesting that it, there's no money in it, but is is the data interesting to you in that when people bought a record, you didn't know how often they played it, but now you, you can quantify how often someone is playing a piece of music. Is that at all interesting or you're just so outraged by the revenue? Well, I guess that's one way to look at it, but uh, it, yeah, it doesn't I mean, do the writer any good. Right. Really, what you know, who cares? You know, you, uh, you, you can't eat data. Mm-hmm. Right. I love that, Stacey. Can we put that on T-shirt? Yes. <laughs> John, you had an interesting comment, which was, sort of speaks to the magic of uh, Dirty Dancing, and that is that a hit song drives the movie, and the movie drives the song. So it, it was the miracle of those two working in tandem for Dirty yeah, Dancing. I would say that I'd reverse that, but yes, the, the movie first at first was what everybody was responding to. Then the song sort of took over and it would drive people to the theater. Mm-hmm. Right, and then and the song also evokes those feelings of right. uh, watching the film and how, how happy it made you and how much it resonated with you. And so it just becomes kind of all wrapped together in this quilt, it's just warm and wonderful. <clears throat> it's the culmination of all the parts you know, creating a phenomenon. You take out Patrick Swayze or Jennifer or the song or mm-hmm. or the little, you know, story of, of uh, or, you know, Jennifer and, and Bill Medley singing. All those parts, you know, created this phenomenon. And I think if you pull out one of those parts, the song or Patrick, you don't have the same end result. Can you talk a little bit about that collaboration between Bill and Jennifer when they when they recorded your song? Well, I think that Bill didn't want to sing another duet. He he had to be talked into, you know, coming out to California or going to New York, wherever he was. He was having a child. His wife was having a child. And he really didn't want anything to do with singing another duet or this particular song for the movie. And I think it took several, several tries. I think Kenny Ortega was a, a close friend with uh, with Bill. And um, he, but he always wanted to kind of sing with Jennifer uh, Warren. And so they figured, well, let me see if Jennifer Warren wants to do it. And maybe that'll sway him. And I guess eventually they had the child and Jennifer Warren was, you know, going to sing on the song. And it kind of coerced him to, you know, come out. And then, like I said, he he listened to the song and he goes, how the hell am I going to sing this song? Listen to that guy's voice. You know, oh. he, he's way the hell up there. I can't hit those notes. Yeah. 
And so Frank, you, you, no. sent me, you sent me that thing the other day of, of Bill Medley talking about it. He said exactly the same thing you did. Oh, no, it's a porn movie. Dirty Dancing. It's a yeah. porn movie. <laughs> <laughs> he said exactly that same thing. I Talk know. about what you're doing well, with, uh, with We Will Yacht You and uh, some, of, some upcoming plans for all, all three of you guys would be great to hear. Well, the We Will uh, Yacht You thing is really uh, Ken, uh, Ken Franklin, who actually is an agent that booked us on your show. And uh, he's putting together <clears throat> kind of a uh, Yacht Rock concerts. And Yacht Rock is kind of all 80s music. And there's actually bands called Yacht Rock and there's uh, channels uh, on radio called Yacht Rock. And so he called me up and, and he had uh, a disc jockey from iHeart Radio out in uh, Dayton, Ohio, call me. And uh, his name was uh, Jeff, Jeff Stone and uh, Jeff Stevens. And Jeff said, listen, I'm a big Frankie and the Knockouts fan and, and I would love to record your song, Sweetheart. And I said, go ahead, man, go, go record it, have fun. He goes, no, no, I want you to sing on it with me. And so I did so. And on Valentine's Day, we released Sweetheart. And uh, it debuted number 64 on the AC charts. And so Jeff said, why don't you come out? I'm going to have Bill Champlin from Chicago, keyboard player who wrote, you know, Hard Habit to Break and all these great songs. I'm going to have him come out and you and my band, Stranger, his band was called Stranger, is called Stranger. And let's do a concert. And so I did that on Valentine's Day. And then they rebooked us to come out this summer in August to redo another Yacht Rock show with Bill Champlin and myself and, and Stranger. So, you know, it's kind of a thing that Ken Franklin is putting together and I'm just going along for the ride, you know, keeping my open. And Frank, you, you also uh, produce shows like Taylor, Simon and King, which is about James Taylor, Carly Simon and Carol King. And how does that work? And is that still an active process for you? It is. We just sold out for the third time the Count Basie's Vocal Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. Show played um, a week ago, Saturday. And uh, it's a celebration of three American troubadours, James Taylor, Carly Simon, Carol King. And um, one of the lead singers is my wife, Sherman, who is a former Rockette. And uh, oh, wow. a, um, she was in several Broadway shows, uh, West Side Story and a lot of other shows. And she had her own TV show in New Zealand for nine years. And so Lisa's one of the singers um, with along with Mary McCrink, who is kind of like an Irish folk singer. She takes these songs and really does her own thing to a lot of Carole King songs. And then uh, Byron uh, Crawford Smith is the gentleman who does a lot of the James Taylor stuff. And it's such an interesting feeling being in a room watching people of our age sing along with every song. And it's kind of like uh, the soundtrack of their lives. You know, mm -hmm. listen to all of these like unbelievable songs. It's a 10 piece band. So there's like, it's a little, a mini orchestra. And sometimes it breaks down to just like a violin and an acoustic guitar and a voice. And then pieces come in and out. We orchestrated it. So it has this dynamic uh, kind of feeling to take the audience. And there's like videos of different moments in, in uh, Carly's life with James and, and different things with Carol King and James Taylor and how the three of their lives connected 
and it's um, it's a show that I, I really am passionate about now. And you know, helping my wife, you know, it, it's kind of neat to be able to do that as well. Oh gosh, yeah, really cool. And what are you, what are you uh, up to next? Oh, go ahead, Fritzy. You have a question? I, I no, I just wanted to say um, that John, you have your own indie label, and and talk about who records with you. Well, um, uh, if you remember, uh, Moby Grape. Yeah. From the 60s. Okay. Peter Lewis. I've done a couple of records with Peter. Peter is Loretta Young's son. Wow. wow. Um, we're going back a ways. But, uh, <laughs> but in fact, I'm working on some stuff with Peter at the moment for our sec his second record. And the first record was his songs. And now we're writing some songs together for his next record and his daughter Arwen um, we did a record that was the first record we did actually um, we did 12 Moby Grape songs with uh, Arwen singing so a female perspective on Moby Grape songs people some people may not know Moby Grape was very influential 60s uh, San Francisco 60s band but they Boomers know who they are yeah absolutely oh yeah they do or they don't you think they, do. they do absolutely yeah well, they, they're sort of the unsung heroes, you know, they're, they've, you'll, you'll talk to Robert Plant is one of the biggest, Moby Grape is one of his biggest influences, Little Steven, a huge influence on him. So they're, they're all, you know, Beck, Beck has also been very influenced. So uh, that's, that's them and uh, a band that, that I worked with years ago called The Size. They were in the 90s around the time of um, um, like mid 90s. But they were always a power pop band, so they kind of struggled against the Nirvana, you know, um, type, you know, Nirvana um, grunge, grunge thing. Uh, who's Ugh. the other band I'm thinking of? Also grunge at the same time. So they suffered then. But uh, 20 years later, we did a, a new record here in the barn. Uh, I have a barn upstate New York, and uh, so we did that record. And then, uh, for some unknown reason, actually, I know the reason. There was another song Frankie and I wrote called. You're the only one it was in a, a movie uh, by uh, Sylvester Stallone, uh, which was entitled uh, Avenging Angelo. And uh, we had the song in the movie, uh, a guy named Steve Holy sang it, but it was never released uh, to the public just in the movie. It was in the movie it was never came out as a song. So I, I, in my studio decided to start tracking that song in hopes of getting somebody else to cover it because I thought it was a great song and I had it in my mind a certain way. And when it came time to put a vocal on it, um, I just tried my own voice on it <clears throat> and people responded well to it. So that turned into the Why Because, which were songs that I had written for other people, uh, four of them with, you know, with Frankie for other artists. And uh, I did that. And, um, and then, in fact, uh, you talked about uh, Maroon 5, the bass player from Maroon 5 played bass on, on a song that I had written with John Waite and um, uh, Keith Reed from uh, Procol Harum. And, and then, uh, during the, wow. then during the um, pandemic, I, I came out every day to the barn and I just followed that record with a new record called She Said. And it's uh, all new songs I had written for me, which is the first time I'd ever done that, written songs me wow so um that's out now i just put that out in november and um just um 
putting the songs it, out. It's, it's really worth checking out because, you know, mm-hmm. there's this other side of John that nobody knew, and I don't think he even knew. You know, and he got introduced to himself. <laughs> doing the, oh, the I love that. Oh, what a great it, line. It is kind of true. I mean, I, I, I never, I, that was the reason, really, the second record I, I wanted to do. The first record revealed something. But again, those were songs written for others. It, it did. It did give me a voice. The second record told me who I was as an artist, which, which, uh, I kind of very interesting. I'm kind of happy with it. Right. Which is Stacy. You've had a great career, and you, I, I, are you still the chairman of the uh, Nashville uh, uh, Opera Association? Well, I'm um, past. Well, I'm past president of National Film Festival, past president of Grammy-nominated Alias Chamber Ensemble, past president of Leadership Music, past president of National Opera, and I'm the current president of the National Opera Guild. Wow. And then, as you mentioned, I served four years as commissioner in Oak Hill, two of those years well, as vice mayor. That's what I was going to say. You seem way too cool to be a politician. That, that just shocked <laughs> me when I read well, that. Well, four, four years was enough. It was, it was, uh, <laughs> it, it was, although a total of, I also served on the planning commission, which was hysterical. When they asked me to join the planning commission, I said, I'm a college dropout composer and songwriter. I know nothing about stormwater runoff. So, but they still oh, that's put me on there. Achiever makes good. I support I, that. I learned a, I learned a lot. Yeah, but it's um, but yeah, my my new thing is um, a little bit of an unexpected journey. In that, uh, in 2015, I went to Italy for a songwriter workshop, and I bought a new camera, and I started taking black and white photos of people in street photography, and um, it became a thing. And I just actually won my fourth international award for my photography. Can and, people see uh, your work online? Yeah, if they go to StacyWidelitz.com or Stacy Widelitz on Instagram, it's all I use Instagram only for my work. Uh, and it's it's really fun. I'm getting another show, a second uh, show of my photography at a great new gallery here called Prima Signa Gallery that handles Helmut Newton and Slim Aarons and and me. So it's uh, it's it's quite a quite an honor. And again, totally unexpected and just really fun. Wow. Now you have to turn individual pictures into NFTs and become a billionaire in like seven days. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, I just actually heard a whole thing on NPR about NFTs. I still don't now. understand it. I just they're, said that because I heard it in a conversation. They're kind of imploding on themselves. You oh, know? really? Oh, is that true? Well, oh, first, first explain what they are and then explain why the implosion. Well, the NFT is really not anything physical. It's a, a file that you can claim ownership to after having bought it. And it's just like this digital presence um, that you say, well, I own this. But it doesn't okay. mean that an actual picture that's hanging or a piece of music or it's it's a digital file. And when it first started, I think there was this um, and it's all related to blockchain and Ugh. all of that stuff. Oh, well, it's, it explodes. It's it's. Um, you know, became like the, the thing of the moment when it first appeared because there was one guy that suddenly made $7 million, okay. uh, you know, an artist from an NFT. And because everybody started jumping on it, now people are saying, yeah, I sold this piece as an NFT. Well, you know, for $100. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's not like there, it's something that's bought by the appreciator of a work of art. You're mm-hmm. buying a, a digital 
file of some sort. So it's not like you're buying a Degas because you love Degas no. and the dancers but and you're putting no, your it's house. It's a scam. Right? It's like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is hypothetical money. It's not money. I, I tell people that Bitcoin is like my sex life. It only exists online. <laughs> so, but if when you're describing an NFT, what I'm picturing is that the, the, there's two factors at play here, pride of ownership and also an, an investment potential, right? Yeah. So in the art, art world, people, connoisseurs of fine art, love to show everybody their wonderful taste. So is, right. is, that, is, it, is it playing on those yearnings or? It's similar, but you can't even point at it on your wall, as Got I was it. saying. You're yeah. it's, it's, on the computer, though. Yeah. Yeah. Point at it on the computer, but um. but it's kind of unsustainable in that I think art is meant to sort of exist in in our physical spaces, right? Well, that, that's that's yeah. that's yeah. my feeling. You know that that's a little bit old school, but that's my feeling. But uh, but music exists in digital spaces, of course. But it but it it goes from the digital space into into our very beings, into our cellular your structure. Word, your Mm -hmm. yes. yes, and it just changes the way you feel. And I guess art is meant to do that as well. All right, it's a compli complicated conversation. Yeah. So, well, I, like, I knew this hour was going to go way too fast. Yeah. Tell us where uh, we can I, find each of you online, and, and, and then we'll include all of those links in our show notes. So go ahead. For okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, for me, my website uh, is stacywidelets.com. You'll see the home page is a black and white photo from 1989 of me, Patrick, and Gloria Estefan, <laughs> the night that we won the, the night that we won our BMI Pop Awards. Oh. Uh, and then on Instagram to see my, you can see photography on the website, but I keep my Instagram updated, um, and that's just at Stacy Weidlitz, all is one word, and it's um, you know like I I have a photo up there now that I took in Memphis a week and a half ago or two weeks ago. Oh, so. okay, wonderful. So it's kept current. And Frankie? Um, you know, basically uh, for me, I, when people ask me where you can find me, I go to, you know, the uh, Dirty Dancing demos because I want to kind of push that charity. So on mm -hmm. Facebook, Dirty Dancing demos, you can own a piece of uh, Dirty Dancing history if you're a fan. And you can see all the things that I post about different uh films and little segments of in fact somebody recently sent me about a minute clip of the actual day they filmed uh the last scene with john and my and donnie's demo playing time of my life in the background so that's oh, on oh, that's great so you can go listen to that and and while you're there you can purchase uh you know the, all the original demos that um, go to pancreatic cancer and then the other thing is uh, taylorsimonking.com. That's uh, the show that I'm producing. And you can see all about that show. And there's some EPKs, electronic press kits. And you can see little bits about that show um, there. And that's really my life. <laughs> Wonderful. That's awesome. John? John? Yeah. Uh, OMAD Records, O-M-A-D, which comes from Ordinary Madness, Charles Bukowski. Omad, <laughs> omadrecords.com uh, or johndinicola.com. And, and uh, Omad, of, of course, is uh, all the, the artists on, on my label. And uh, johndinicola.com will tell you about me. All right. Go That's check so out. Awesome. Yeah. 
it's really worth listening to. Yeah, absolutely. Version. Yeah, and, and you know the video version uh, on YouTube um, is a is, there's a video version where I uh, during the height of the pandemic, I had people just put a mask on and film themselves with their uh, phone, and there's a, a bunch of edits uh, edits of that of people with their. Expression with your eyes, speaking with your eyes. Right. Yes, Very yes, cool. absolutely. All right, well, Fritz. We had, we had some great memories uh, today. From I, I knew that an hour just wasn't going to be enough. And we're so thankful that we got to visit with Frankie Previtt, John DiNicola, and Stacy Widlitz, and congratulate them on their really miraculous accomplishment with the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Just a great conversation, guys. We appreciate you so much. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you have been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our guests, Frankie Previtt, John DiNicola, Stacey Widlitz. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Damanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. I always learn something new. I didn't know you went too far <laughs> with Eleanor back then.